Hello and welcome to The Week at Work. My name is Claire O'Connor. I'm here with my co-host Dave Gibney, um, Philip O'Connor, Irish journalist living in Sweden, and Sonia Balakopalan, who's a mathematician and a socialist. So, massive week in the news this week. Um, I reckon we could probably spend the whole hour just talking about the one story, the golf gate. But I'm going to go to Dave to start off. Uh, Dave, what's grabbing your attention on the front pages? Well, I've been looking at a couple of the newspapers' um, front pages, and I'll start off, I suppose, with the as I usually do with the weekend's Irish Times. Uh, as you'd expect, resignations and anger as public figures flout COVID nineteen restrictions. And there's a, I'm sure we'll get into detail about it. I won't get into it yet, but um, it, there's a, I, I underline these stories. You know, the, the the valuable quotes are the bits that are important, and the whole thing is fucking underlined. <laughs> like it's hard not to. Um, to, to be amazed by by this, you know, we saw the scandal in the UK about Dominic Cummings, one person flouting the, the, the regulations, and in Ireland we have 81 of them. So we've 81 Dominic Cummings to discuss later on. And then there's the heartbreaking story as well on the front page about the crash there in um, Donegal in Maville. Uh, just a, a family going for um, a bite to eat and uh, playing a bit of bowling up in Derry. And then I know the I know the bowling alley that they go to fairly well myself, and um, it's just very sad on the way home. Crashed the car, and the mother got out and survived, but the father and the two kids um, perished in the in the waters. Uh, there's an investigation in the the Sunday Times talks about that story further into it um, about how there's going to be an investigation because I believe the road had just been recently tarmacked or or relayed. Uh, and it might have had a, a cause because it, it seems that the car skidded off over the wall and into the water during the high tide. So very sad story there on the front page there. There's also, um, uh, uh, and this one might come to fill up in a few minutes, but uh, just a little quote from Jennifer O'Connell in her article uh, in yesterday's Irish Times. We are stumbling into a strategy that might be called accidental Sweden, leaning heavily on luck, people's judgment, and a sense of personal responsibility. So there's a full article that we might discuss later on, but you might want to throw some of that stuff at Philip uh, later on, seeing as he's on the ground in Sweden and knows exactly what's happening over there. Uh, I don't know if you want me to go through the Sunday Times front page as well, or do you want to pass well, I was on? thinking actually we might jump to Philip now, consider some of those stories were directly related to his experience. Philip, do you want to jump in there? Absolutely, yeah. Um, I know Jen has been writing a few articles about this and, you know, how what she thought about schools reopening and that kind of thing. And it's it's a fascinating uh, conversation to have because it sort of encapsulates all of the whole COVID hysteria, all the things we know, all the things we don't know, and all the things we're feeling. So we have schools set to reopen. In Sweden, they're already open. My kids went back to school this week, right? Um, previously, before the summer, one of them was doing summer lessons from home. The other one was going there pretty much every day. The only thing that they really did in school was you know in the lunch queue because they get a hot lunch every day they had to stay a meter apart and the salad buffet instead there was plastic in front of it and you know the dinner lady was basically handing out the food and that so very little happened in the schools here but that's you know what when jen describes the accidental sweden and the first thing that she says is it's based on luck now i think that might be the irish experience and not the swedish one right because the idea that Sweden is somehow just, you know, like a golfer popping its finger in its mouth and holding its finger up to feel the breeze is exactly the opposite of what's actually happened here. So the state epidemiologist here is a guy called Anders Tegnell. Tegnell has worked with epidemics stretching back to Ebola in Central Africa in the, the early 1990s and the mid-1990s, right? 
he wasn't surprised by this. In fact, they've been, been expecting this. And many epidemiologists have been expecting something like this for the last seven or eight years, going back to bird flu, uh, avian flu, previous SARS viruses, right? So the idea that somehow Sweden is making this up as it goes along, or it's looking at this, going, no, no, this was always the plan. They were never going to do the whole lockdown, like, you know, a sort of a panicked response, which is what we've seen in many other countries. Now, you can argue, and I would be the first to argue that one of the main pillars of their mitigation strategy here was to protect the elderly and that has been a catastrophic failure they just have not managed to do that and what has happened there is indefensible but on the other side of it which was you know this whole thing of personal responsibility wash your hands try not to socialize stay at home if you have any symptoms that has actually worked very very well so you know it's a very very qualified success and what Tegnell has always said was that lockdowns don't work because eventually this is this is verbatim from him to me lockdowns don't work because eventually people are going to go out and we see that now in the summertime claire we see people going okay i want to go to the beach i want to be out in the sunshine i'm sick of not seeing me ma or me da or them not being able to meet the newborn or not being able to go to a funeral or not being able to go and play golf with phil hogan and these you know so it's very difficult to keep up that sense of i'm going to stay at home for six months eight months a year and now it's come to the point where we're saying okay we're putting this on the vulnerable people we're putting this on risk groups and we're saying over 70s stay home people with you know immune deficiency you guys stay home and the rest of us will just just go on as normal, right? Sweden hasn't really done that. It's getting back to normal now. But, you know, I mean, I'd say the traffic is getting back to normal. Traffic on public transport is getting back to normal. There's still loads of things that haven't been teased out. Uh, like looking at the, the, so the worker situation, the people who are exposed to this have always been the taxi drivers, bus drivers, uh, frontline healthcare workers, people who have been working in elderly care. And they have suffered disproportionately, as have people of immigrant backgrounds, because we're the people who do those jobs. We're the people who, you know, nobody will, else will employ us. So we have to be out there doing those jobs. And I include myself in that for once, right? I'm very privileged as a middle-aged uh, white man here. But I still that I have to do that. There's nobody handing me a, sort of a huge amount of money at the end of uh, each week or each month, you know, so I just have to go out and do whatever work is there, you know. But yeah, um, so I wouldn't, I wouldn't glorify Sweden. I wouldn't be popping the halo on Sweden just yet. Uh, there has been an awful lot of tragedy here, but Tegnell has always said that what they want to do has to be sustainable over time. And human, he's taken human nature into account, which I'm not sure was done in many other countries. He realized that people would get bored of it. So if you just inconvenience them to a certain degree, but not lock them down completely, that they'll continue to obey you. And so far, that seems to be working. Can I yeah, ask? I think, uh, sorry, just can I just ask a question? What are the deaths like there? Because I actually haven't looked at the Swedish deaths in a while. Um, the, the, the deaths are still over five thousand, Dave. Right now, what we, we need to go back to the time when you know there's been so many expressions that have been introduced into the English language and every other language. You know, we talk about social distancing. It was something we'd never heard before Christmas last year, right? And the other one is flattening the curve. Do you remember when we used to talk about flattening the curve and that was the most important thing? Jesus, then we got all excited and we were going to crush the curve and that was the best that you could do, right? Now, say it quietly, but Sweden has actually managed that, right? So if you look at the curves and the important curves for Tegnell and for his people at the, the, the Public Health Authority here, they would be the number of deaths, but even more important is the number of infections and the most important is the number of people in intensive care. And the number of people in intensive care is down to around about single digits every day. They're getting, you know, one, two, three, five, six, seven people in every day. That going down from, you know, the dozens, if not hundreds, back at the, the height of the pandemic here for that kind of thing was kind of from the 1st of May until just about the end of June. And since then, it has steadied off, right? Now, one of the reasons for that, and I absolutely do not want to sound crass 
here, but this was told to me by a former state epidemiologist here called Yohan Yaseki. He basically said to me that the reason for that is many of the people who will be killed by this disease are already dead, right? So about 90% of those who've died in Sweden, if, if not more than 90%, were over the age of 70. So they've already been, this, is, this disease is absolutely merciless when it comes to older people. But unfortunately, they're no longer with us anymore. So now what the disease has, now the places that it incubates is in young, relatively healthy people or younger, relatively healthy people. So people under the age of 70. And that's the sort of the, the you know, it's almost a, like a societal shift, if you like, because, you know, and you can't underestimate, you know, how this disease has basically harvested elderly people and really done so, you know, terrible things. That's why when I went through care homes, it did terrible, terrible damage. But unfortunately, those people are no longer with us. So, you know, it looks great. Oh, Sweden's policy worked. Yeah, but there was an enormous price paid by people whose grandparents and whose parents are no longer with us. The people who built up this country through the, the post-war period, through Olaf Palmer's people's home, they're the people whose taxes built this country. And now all of a sudden, they were sort of almost sacrificed in a way because of the way that the situation looks. And if we want to get into that briefly, the reason I think that, or, you know, one of the reasons that that, that did happen is because of the nature of elderly care in this country. It has gone from being something that was very, very important, for the most part, state-owned. It, it's been privatized, right? So now what you have is people in small electric cars nipping around, uh, nipping into a woman for 15, 20 minutes just to make sure that she's been able to have a shower, brush her teeth and have something to eat, do a bit of ironing and go again, right? So you have people moving. Previously, uh, an elderly person who had home care would expect to come into contact with four people per week, right? That can be up to 12 now. Okay, that's just how it works because the casualization of that labor. And the other part of that is that you know, there's an awful lot of zero-hour contracts. Now, they were still entitled to take time off, right? If you, had, if you had symptoms of COVID, you were told, stay at home for 14 days and they're going to pay you. But the problem is, what do you do when those 14 days are up? Because you've fallen down. You're no longer top of the pops when they're handing out shifts, right? Because you haven't been around. So what happens is you get paid well for those two weeks. You're paid for all your hours. But after that, your hours aren't guaranteed again. And this precarious kind of employment has led to people going to work when maybe they had a bit of a sniffle and they should have stayed at home. And that then has introduced virus into care settings where the person themselves maybe hasn't been all that badly affected, but the people that they are supposed to be caring for have been affected. Now, there's a provide like there's a sort of an asterisk on what I'm just saying there. This is one of the, the theories that's been worked on by the public health authorities, both locally in Stockholm, which was hardest hit, and all over Sweden and in Finland, right? It hasn't been proved yet, but this is one of the things that they say that they are seeing. This is how they believe the virus got into elderly communities and managed to do so much damage. But again, it's going to be more it's probably even going to be years before we do that and I absolutely guarantee that when we do know what it was if that is one of the cases it's going to be played down and it's going to be swept under the carpet because of the way this neoliberalism has worked people look, tend to look at Sweden and go oh that's great you know it's a great social democracy everybody gets what they want no an awful lot of that stuff has been sold out this is one of the only countries in the world where you can have schools for profit right and those interests are almost violent in terms of protecting themselves any sort of resistance to those kinds of ideas or, or any sort of criticism of that they may it very very heavily so you know it's a quite a complex situation but i'm looking i'm actually really looking forward to over the next few years getting to the bottom of exactly what happened with sweden's mitigation strategy so you know if it is to be described as a success it's very much a qualified success that's i mean that's brilliant i mean the amount of topics you're touching on there that i definitely want to come back to just talking there about actually uh, education for profit because i want to go to sonia sonia has experience in higher education and i think that a lot of the conversations we've been hearing have been around kids returning to primary school but actually um and we've seen a couple of people really hammering home what's happening in our higher education but i'd love to get your input sonia uh 
Yeah, so, well, I, I still recently I was I was teaching in the Irish higher education sector. And so I think in March we went into lockdown and went like fully into uh, into online mode because there's no pressure or one thing on higher education to have people back in because you know like a lot of what's driving the whole school thing is people want kids to be in school because it's also a form of childcare it's not so much for higher education so we it was pretty much known right from the time we went into lockdown that we're probably not going to be back on campus till christmas like you know so that like there were uh, so the facts were faced fairly earlier right there and i think most irish like almost all irish universities they're not going back to full-time education on campus there'll be a few labs and there'll be like staggered um, use of campus facilities but mostly all education is going to be online but um and then there's a question of can you provide the same education that you used to be able to and like just kind of i mean at the moment i've uh, I, I, I like my contract is up. I've been working kind of on temporary teaching contracts in Irish universities for the last four years. And since my contract is up, um, I decided not to apply for one because one, I didn't really enjoy online teaching. And, you know, I mean, just the amount of preparation involved in into trying to provide anything, uh, anything like the teaching you can provide face to face is just immense and like academics and and support stuff and everybody working in, in universities are just expected to absorb all that extra load you know i mean sure we all have to do our part and we are doing it but i kind of felt like okay i now is actually a good time to take a break from all of this and just thinking about it with the distance um you know i mean higher education has already been like under all these neoliberal pleasure pressures and it's uh, and like when I just step back and think about it, like what's the difference between teaching online and teaching in lecture rooms with two or 300 people? Like, you know, maybe it's actually better if you have a Zoom lecture that the student can record and, um, and listen over later than being sitting there in like overheated classrooms and, and all that stuff. So, I mean, so like the thing I keep coming back to is that like there's all, all these worries about the quality of online and like, you know, this, there's always been attempts to take a higher education online because it is like the people who want to encourage this always think of it as a cost cutting measure because you, you get the lecture to record the lecture, you fire the lecture and you keep playing the lecture over and over again. And, you know, I mean, that's, that's their idea, but like there's a lot more to education than somebody saying words we've had books for like the last few centuries so you know what i mean so uh, uh but yeah. so this uh, it's uh, so it's already been like under pressure to do more but it's it's actually a lot more work and it's uh and with the considering the fact that like Irish, like there, there's been very little hiring over the last few years and and like class sizes have been growing up and up and up and you know like for example people are asking about the campus experience what the campus experience for students would be like i mean i have loads of students who can't afford to live anywhere near campus and they're stuck having two or three hour long commutes or i mean some of them are actually like in not in stable housing situations at all and so i mean they don't have any campus experience to begin with so that yeah. I think as, as people say it's just showing up all the places where we have been failing that's what this pandemic has been doing all along so you know yeah. that's the same it's, in it, education as well it's such and i think as well it really highlights as you said there the 
the lack of equality in um, across teaching in higher education. I mean, if you're a contract teacher, you're not actually getting paid for the huge amount of preparation work you're doing. And that, that gets to the root to precarious work. I mean, we have people leaving the higher education like yourself at a, at a massive rate. Um, and the individualization that you just like, I'm looking at the Irish Examiner front page here and outrage at law, uh, one law for them and one law for us. And it comes back to what Philip um, touched on there and the individualization of this. Like we had, we've had months and months of people sacrificing, um, you know, not going to funerals, not going to weddings, canceling their own weddings, um, you know, older people who have gone months without human interaction. I mean, if somebody doesn't have a care worker like Philip was talking about coming into their home, they, they've gone. So I know people who have actually gone months, but the majority of people, seven, eight weeks, without having any physical contact with people and any human interaction other than maybe through a window or somebody dropping off groceries at their door. So I think what happened with Golfgate is, you know, has gotten to the core of the anger and the collective trauma that people have experienced over the past couple of months. And all of those issues that were that have already been touched on have fed into that. I mean, I don't... I, don't regularly listen to Liveline, but I listened to it the other day and it, the, the outpouring of grief and the outpouring of anger. And it was like all of this stuff that had built up over the past couple of months absolutely exploded um, in the face of the golf gate. And it was, it was that we've, this has been individualized so much and we've seen blame as well. I mean, you look at what happened with Berlin D2 there uh, last week and the, the, the language and the anger by people in power that was directed at those people. And we've seen a very different tone that's been directed at the people in golf gate. Um, but yeah, this individualization when actually these are structural issues and what we've seen now is that it's a very much a two-tiered system. It's this, These don't apply to everybody. I don't think that the government are used to having this level of anger and this level of accountability being expected. I mean, if this didn't affect everybody on such a deep level, I think this is the kind of thing that a lot of us would expect. We've known that these kind of things went on. We've known that these kind of people um, this is the very epitome of the golden circle as well. I think one of the things that jumped out quickest to me about Golfgate in particular was those people in that room. Like you had the head of bank and, you know, the, the sectors, you had, uh, you know, Supreme Court judge in, AG, in XAG, um, one of the biggest recently retired journalists in RTE, along with, you know, a lot of ministers and ex-politicians. And aside from the fact that they, they broke their own regulations. Some of them are actually involved in writing those regulations. Um, what it really exposed to me was this golden circle of people that have access to each other, that even in the midst of a mass pandemic, when, like you said, we've seen the Dominic coming stuff over in the UK, they didn't stop for a second to think maybe this applies to us or maybe this will cause a bit of a fuss or maybe we should just stop for a minute and question that we won't actually get away with this. And yeah, I think that stuff has been really rolling for the past couple of days in terms of people have actually had enough. And that's not something we see very regularly in this country. Claire, can I interrupt you there, right? There's what, you use the word accountability there. And one thing that I just want to push back on here is Dara Kaleri resigning is not accountability, right? Oh, that, totally. That, right? Him going from being a minister to a TD on 90 grand a year with all his expenses and all his privileges still intact is not accountability, right? Phil yeah. Hogan apologizing. Now, at the time we're speaking, he may resign, he may not. Even if he does, it's not accountability, right? That yeah. man has built up pensions and everything else like that, and he's lived a good... None of this is... Account they're not being held accountable, right? You know, they, they, we're trying to hold them to account, but they're not. What would be accountability for me, for Dara Kaleri, who's an elected representative, 
in that situation, if I were Derek Caleri and if I had any sort of a moral compass at all, I would say, I am resigning as a TD. I need to go back to the people that I represent and see if they still have faith in me, right? Yeah. But once at the trough, nobody is stepping away, right? Yeah. And this is what it's all about. You can't change their DNA. This is the scorpion and the frog, basically writ large in Irish media all day, right? It's in their nature. They were so desperate to get back into this situation where they were parceling out contracts left, right, and center, and where they were claiming the expenses and doing all these things that, you know, they had access to ministerial posts. Somebody said to me, um, as many people will know, many of our listeners will know, I was asked by the Social Democrats uh, to consider running in the European elections last year up against Gary Gannon, who's now a TD. And I went to a selection convention and Gary won and he was the candidate and he didn't get in, but now he's in the doll and that's all water on the bridge. But a person outside of the Sock Dems actually contacted me and said, what to do if you get elected? And I said, well, I don't know. I said, you have to go to, you know, first you have to be a candidate, then you have to get elected. He said, you know, there's a budget of two and a half million there, you know? I said, what do you mean? Well, every, basically every MEP has a budget of two and a half million euros per year, right? For advisors and rent and that kind of thing. He said, you know, I've worked a lot in politics. So, you know, let me know if you're looking for an advisor. I said, okay, so this is how it works, right? So this is how the gravy train works. It doesn't matter that this person and I would agree on absolutely nothing under the sun when it comes to politics or economics or journalism or anything else like that. Would this person go, ah, I'm here. If you fancy paying me, you know, X thousand euros a month, or whatever to go and do these things. So we, we have to have greater expectations, both of our politicians, but also of what accountability actually means, right? Yeah. And what, what, what we're seeing here is a lack of leadership, right? Like, and this is it. There's no leadership at the moment in Ireland whatsoever because leadership there would say, like, leadership is doing something and bringing people with you. It's not do as I say, not as I do. And I want to give an example. David might know this because he has family living in Sweden, right? Um, one of the most promising female politicians ever in history of the history of this country was Mona Saleen, right? Stop me if you've heard this story before, but I'm telling it again. Um, Mona Saleen was often tipped to be the first female prime minister. In the 1990s, she's been tipped as being the first female female prime minister of Sweden, right? Still hasn't happened to this day, despite all this thing of equality and everything else in this country, it still hasn't happened. And I'm going to tell you why, right? Mona Saleen is not the kind of person who crosses the T's and dots the I's and that kind of thing. She had a government credit card and she bought a pack of nappies and a bar of Toblerone chocolate, right? And she let that go in with all the rest of her receipts for her airline tickets and that kind of thing. And she got back the 12 or 15 euros or whatever it happened to be, right? And that was found out. One of the newspapers found out that and they put it on the front page, and she had to resign, right? So she had to resign over a fucking Toblerone and a packet of nappies for her child because she didn't say, oh, sorry, that was a personal expense. I have to pay that back, right? She was putting the sackcloth and ashes, and she wandered the political uh, wilderness for the Social Democrats. For years, she was forced out, right? Nobody would go near her, and she was basically, she was everything that was wrong and bad and corrupt for a fucking Toblerone, I'll have to point out again, right? Then, when she was finally made leader of the social, and it took years for her to come back, both internally and externally, to rebuild the trust of people, right? And she came back, and she stood for one election, and the people still hadn't forgiven her. And after that, she lost the election, and she had to walk away. So Yoram Pasha lost the first election to a centre-right coalition, and Salim walked, lost the second. And, I, went, and I, I asked people, why? Why couldn't you elect her? Why couldn't you vote for her? And they went, the Toblerone. And that's it. So in this country, you'll be held to account. No, there's still corruption, right? There's still shit happens the whole time, right? But that's the kind of level of thing you are dealing with. Like if you're caught with your hand in a cookie jar at all, there's almost no going back here. It is extremely difficult to, for any sort of redemption to happen. So, you know, yeah. I don't know, Dave has his finger up there. He's going to have a go with one. 
<laughs> oh, no, 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 the opposite. I'm not going to have a go with you. I mean, it, just in terms of accountability in this country, we, we, we've, we've seen it over the, the years. And one of the, one of the structural things that enables that is the clientelism that happens in this country, like where we have one TD for every 25,000 people compared to the UK, one m- member of parliament for every 82,000 people. It's hard to be at every single GAA match or every funeral that you can go to and do what Irish TDs do in other constituencies. In Australia, it's one for every 75,000 um, uh, members of, of the community. So, it, I mean, <clears throat> those that clientelism is a major problem that we have here, but nobody wants to reduce the amount of TDs that we have. They want to keep it the way it is. That, that's just one element of it, but... We've had scandal after scandal and the whole Charlie Hockey stuff and, you know, going, going back beyond even Charlie Hockey. And what it's seen is in the Irish mentality is, ah, he's a cute whore. I sure, if it would, wouldn't we all have done it had, had we had the opportunity type that of thing? admired. But with this one, with this one, it's diff- different because everybody has been doing their very, very best to, well, not everybody, the vast majority of people have been doing their very, very best uh, and recognizing that them going out isn't just affecting them. It's affecting their neighbors, their family members, and, uh, you know, vulnerable people in particular who we all, you know, want to look after and make sure they're okay. These guys stuck two fingers up to every vulnerable person in our country, all across the, the island, in every constituency. It's the first time I'd say Derek Leary, you know, being from Mayo, you know, the way the Mayo people are probably saying, well, well, I know there's an article in the Irish Times saying that they're not too upset with him, but there are a lot of people I know in Mayo that are fuming about what's, gone, what's happened here. And you have to remember, there's other articles in the papers today, which we might get to later on, not just talking about the deaths, but the long-term implications, people who now have lung problems as a result of COVID, and, you know, people who couldn't, as you mentioned, I think, Philip, um, couldn't go to funerals, couldn't, you know, attend uh, weddings. I actually, the day this happened, my best friend was getting married. He had to get married, just him, uh, his girlfriend and their two parents. Uh, and no friends were allowed to go to the wedding. And this being planned from two years ago um, because they were abiding by everything. They didn't think, do you know what we'll do? We'll put a fucking partition down and we can bring in, you know, 50 or, or 100 people. And they abided by the rules on the day that these guys were flouting the rules. Um, and as you said, the high profile people that were involved, you have to ask the question, you know, how impartial has the likes of Sean O'Rourke been on RTE when he's in a golf society for the Oroctus members? I mean, come on, you're a fucking RTE presenter. How do you get onto the Oroctus Golf Society if you're not an elected member of parliament? How does a justice, uh, you know, a, a, a senior member of the... Uh, the judiciary get in there as well. I mean, it, look, I, we could talk about this all day. I won't, but the, 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 the other two parts, two elements before I finish up about this is the, the breaking news that Phil Hogan had been breaching the rules well before this stuff, as had a number of others. The XTD, uh, Podge Connolly, an independent TD between 2002 and 2007, who was also uh, on a Spain trip nine days ago. Um, yeah, so I, I'll wrap it up there. <laughs> Um, I'm just going to go to Sonia on what, what Davis was talking about there. Sonia, do you want to jump in? Uh, yeah, no, I was just thinking about that, the whole thing about accountability and, you know, and what people expect and uh, just like, I mean, uh, this is like Fianna Fáil is the party of the Galway racist tent, if anybody remembers, like, you know, uh, ancient history like that and how many years of days. And this was when this country was going through crippling, crippling austerity. And you know, has there been, and that was maybe that didn't quite feel quite so personal because of life's loss to so many of us. But the impact of that is again something that's had like a long, you know, like a really long impact on various people's earnings and, and life conditions and 
uh, but you know now, now they're back in power and uh, and the thing about representation yeah we got a lot of representation in this country but we just don't have enough democracy i mean like you know we have a government in place that nobody really voted for exactly this you know so it's it's uh, and so how are we going to hold these people accountable? You know, I mean, like, okay, right. Say, uh, best case scenario, the entire government resigns. We have another election. Um, how long before everybody comes back in? You know, and and when people feel this that that there's another law for us, another law for them. Um, how are we going to take that very real anger and turn that into some real power for people that we can actually hold these people and say, this is not how we're going to do business anymore. I mean, this is the key. This is what I keep thinking about. It's, it's yeah. very funny. Sorry, Claire. It's very funny yeah. to just say that, Sonia, because I tend to refer to this government on Twitter as the government that nobody wanted because, you know, literally nobody went and said, do you know what I'd love? Do you know what I'd love? Fianna Fáil, Fianna Gael and the Greens. That'd be great. That's exactly <laughs> what we need right now, you know? And, and the other thing that bothers me, Sonia, is what you're saying there about, you know, accountability and representation and democracy, right? Um, Michal Martin said, Fianna Gael been in power for too long and he needs to go out. And I think Fianna Gael also said that, no, we're not going into coalition with Fianna Fáil. And then the votes are counted and then they go, oh, we're just going to do it anyway. Hang on a second, right? If you go in there, if you tell me you're not going to do something and I give you my vote, and then you go and do the exact opposite. Now, I know promises get broken. I know every single promise can't be kept, but there are certain fundamental things, especially when it comes to do with government formation. If you say things about government formation, you can say things about potholes, that's fine. You can say things about referendums, that's fine. You can say things about the economy, that's also fine. If you say things about government formation, that is one of the absolutely explicit things to do with an election, you know, especially with the single transferable vote, when you can like, you know, make a list to people down the line. You're going, okay, I'm voting for Fianna Fáil because they're not going to put Leo Varadkar in there again. They're not going to give Simon Harris another job. They're not going to give Owen Murphy another job. And then it happens. And that's hugely problematic for them to say, okay, you know, well, this is how uh, the chips have fallen out and now we'll just do what we like out of it, you know, because, and then to sort of exclude Sinn Féin and pretty much, you know, in Swedish they call it inviting somebody in with your elbow, you know, so you're sort of, it's like you're extending your hand but you're actually pushing them away with your elbow. And that's what they kind of did to the left-wing parties because they didn't want them in there. Fianna Fáil know full well that the soccer Dems, or you know, pathetic as they are, that the Labour Party might have done something a little bit better than what the Greens are actually doing at the moment. You know, I mean, the Greens. I just have this image of you know that sort of a uh, furry doormat that you have. You know those brown, wiry doormats. That's basically the Greens at the moment. You know, and they're just getting sort of walked all over there. You know, but certainly there are things to be done. And what we're actually lacking again, it goes back to that moral compass. If Michael Lowry can still be in the doll after all the tribunals, and Mona Celine mm-hmm. has to walk the political wilderness over a Toblerone, that we're lacking something there. And it doesn't actually come down to the politicians because democracy gives you exactly what you deserve. You get no more, no less, right? It's down to voters. It's down to us saying to ourselves, enough. It's down to us saying to to politicians, enough. We want you to behave differently. We want you to be better than this. I I always come back to, I think we have this collective lack of self-worth and whether that's a hangover from colonialism or the Catholic Church or whatever the reason, we've always been happy to accept the scraps off the table, even when we know this stuff has happened. And I think you know, the reaction to Derek Kaleri is a very good example because people are almost like, well, isn't he very good for, for you know, giving a proper <laughs> apology? <laughs> As if, you know, that makes him better than anybody else. When in reality, he was actually involved in drawing up these, these guidelines. But just before, I'm going to go today, but I want to just touch on one, the front page of the examiner, Aoife Grace Moore, again, just knocking it out of the park. Just one quote about, you know, how we are seeing a greater level of anger than we normally are. And it's, 
This sick, sore and tired government, still in its, in its infancy, has been carried by the goodwill of the Irish people for weeks and it appears one night of barefaced arrogance has been the final straw. And I think that, you know, in, just really encapsulates what's going on here and why we might eventually see people push past that that really low standard that we have for politicians and start to see some um, some at least move towards accountability. Dave, do you want to jump back in there? Yeah, I mean, it's a slightly separate um, issue and we can come back to the, the, the Golfgate stuff if you want, but uh, it, 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 it leads in, it, or it, I mean, the Golfgate thing feeds into these things, but there was, as you saw, and it's page two of today's Sunday Times, four men arrested after scuffles break out at anti-mask protests. And what, what's happening here is people's real and justified concerns and frustrations with a political elite who don't give a shit about them are being driven into the hands of the far right in this country. And that's a major concern that I would have. And it's, it's one that I think the politicians themselves are fully aware uh, of the growth of the far right here. And that growth is being fed by these idiotic fucking decisions to attend, you know, these things. And, you know, if you're an anti-mask or anti-COVID person or anti-vax or any of this sort of stuff, they're saying... You can you can hear them saying it, you know, well, if it doesn't affect the elite, why should we bother paying attention to this stuff? And why should we wear, wear masks and stuff? But the coverage of it over the weekend, I found a little bit frustrating because the big concern around yesterday's protest, according to Gardaí, seemed to be the counter-protest, the, the, the anti-fascists turning up, the left-wing, or the, the far left, as they were called in, in one of the papers, left-wing counter-protests could lead to disturbances and clashes. And like my frustration being obviously a, a trade union uh, representative and all the rest of it, in we had the Debenhams issue where a thousand workers let go and when they had a protest, the Gardaí were immediately on the scene to tell them to move along. They weren't allowed to protest while using social distancing, while wearing masks, but yet the, the crew of those who shall remain unnamed turn up to protest outside the High Court months ago with no masks, no social distancing, and nobody even references them or asks them to move along. So we've got, again, one rule for some of us and one rule for these far-right fucking idiots who turn up to protest against wearing masks and protecting people's health. And, and the overlap that they have in their own heads is that they're, you know, they're pro-life. Pro-life, except when it comes to protecting the health of the most vulnerable in our society. Uh, I just thought it was worth a reference of that story as well. Yeah, no, totally. And I think as well, the... Um just want to touch on one thing that wasn't covered in the papers at all that's that's been a big thing online and that's that Una McGurk a state appointee on the International Protection Appeals Tribunal spoke at this rally and I mean this woman was part of a, an appeal that refused a woman asylum that was a very and it was a very controversial case because people really rallied against the, the you know the, this person being refused asylum and I, you know I know people who contacted me who really you know ordinary people who would never normally feed into you know um racist tropes or usually misogynist wouldn't be down with anti uh anti-choice arguments any of that kind of stuff and saw this as an anti-government protest and they messaged me and they're like are you going to this and i had to be going back and be like i would not be caught dead standing with any of these people like these are these people actively so hate they are racist they are misogynist they are um, you know, these are people who portray some of these portray themselves as you know anti banks, but actually they're pro landlords. You know, they were involved in an eviction last week where they were evicting tenants illegally. So, you know, how these people are portraying themselves are really pulling people in, and I find that really worrying. And it's because I suppose, you know, good heads that would normally organise a protest, you know, around government frustrations, aren't willing to put other people uh, at risk at the minute, and they see that you know 
what's happening at the minute is the, the, the measures, although they might be frustrating and there's some contradiction and there's a bit of hypocrisy going on around the government saying not addressing you know, flights coming into the country and prioritizing private businesses over private individuals. It, it's not enough of a it's not enough of a contrast that people are willing to take to the streets en masse. So um, I think, you know, Sonia, you were just going to jump in there, were you? Uh, no, I, I was oh, actually sorry, going sorry, to mention not... the member of the International Collection Appeals Tribunal. I mean, that's, uh, you know, I mean, that's, I, I'm misusing the word, but if, like somebody said, that's institutional racism on a very personal level, like, you know, that's, yeah. if that's, I mean, what, what confidence does that give for anybody who is in the international protection system in as to how fairly they will be treated? Yeah. Philip, did you say you wanted to jump in there? Yeah, I mean, it's just it's one of those subjects that for the, over 20 years now, I've been covering the rise of the far right in Sweden. And I'm standing there, I feel like Cassandra, or I feel like John the Baptist with me beard, standing in the desert, shouting my truth, that everybody's ignoring me. And I don't know if there's any Jesus coming down the line, you know, because I've seen all these happen, all these things happen in Sweden. I've seen the weaponization of anger and of ignorance and of fear. And like I say, right thinking people, genuine, decent people, uh, Claire, who, who are upset by this and they don't understand it. they think well okay yeah that's fair enough okay if it's if phil hogan isn't worried about it then i don't have to be worried about it because again it's this it's this leadership vacuum that's happening there and that's the most troubling thing because people are you know they're willing to be compassionate but they're not willing to have the wool pulled over their eyes or to be mistreated or to be made idiots of or made fools of and they're going to react in that way now these clowns who are outside protesting on the streets and they're not really in this for anybody else they're, what they're trying to do is they're trying to whip up these things the only reason that the far right isn't bigger in ireland than what they already are like you know say the sweden democrats here in sweden in, in scandinavia the true Finns or ukip or something like that is because those views are already kind of okay in Finnegal and Finnefall. You can be racist against travelers in Finnefall or Finnegal. That, that's, that's fine. That's, nobody's going to sack you over that. We've seen, you know, Rona Murphy envelopes that are resigning of her own accord, but there are still councillors there and there's still TDs there. Uh, was it Josefa Madigan who was um, up against it, a halting site being open in her community and yeah. she wrote to people telling them how delighted she was to keep travellers out of their community, you know? So th these things are fine. You know, all the Finnegal MEPs voted to allow people to drain in the Mediterranean. That's all right. That's accepted. In that case, you don't need UKIP. You don't need the Sweden Democrats because the mainstream is already accepting of that. But what we have to be very careful about is because we're living in, you know, what I tend to call the age of stupid, right? It's very, very easy to sort of dilute things down to sound bites, to very simple things. And one of the things we cannot do with COVID-19 is the response to it, right? Certain parts of the response to COVID-19, no matter how well thought out they are, will prove to be wrong because we know nothing about the disease, right? In the beginning, we thought that lockdowns were great because we just stopped the infection from moving around. Now we realize that that can't be done. Now we realize that like New Zealand was the best boy in the class in the beginning there because we thought, oh, that's great. They closed down everything and now there's no cases. And guess what? The first flight that came out of Heathrow that landed in, in Wellington or wherever it landed brought a couple of cases with it. And now they're kind of back to square one, you know? So we're all learning about this as we go along. We're looking to science for answers when all it is giving us is more questions, right? And the, the real failure in Ireland and what has really provided the sort of the fuel for the fire for these far right guys is the fact that the communication for the Irish government and for the various different departments has been catastrophic 
catastrophically bad. So you have a situation there where you can go to mass, but you can't go to the theater. For the love of Jesus, can you explain to me why you're doing these things in specific? Is it because the ceiling of the church is higher than in a sports hall? If so, why can't I go to Parnell Park with me dad if I was even able to get to, to Dunny Carney now and visit him? You know, you need to be, you can't treat people like children. You have to explain these things to them and why. And you have to reserve the fact that, look, this may not be the right thing to do. This may be, but look, at least we're not doing the wrong thing. We know that this uh, transfers between adults indoors. Most, for the most part, is a droplet-borne virus that transfers indoors over extended periods, right? So think of it. Where's the science? Where's Why is there even a politician talking about these things, right? Again, I go back to Sweden's response. Anders Tegnell, the state epidemiologist, I barely heard the prime minister speak. I don't want to hear him speak. He's a fucking welder. What's he going to tell me about COVID-19 that I don't already know? Let the experts in there. Give them, pay them well, and let them do their job. Don't don't undermine them in public and don't be listening to lobbyists who want to be opening up like all my friends in the event industry are crushed. The decent ones are saying, look, we'll just have to put up with this as time goes on. But yeah. I'm not going to be listening to them either because they may as well be a welder like Stefan Levin. So we need to recalibrate again, no more than when it comes to accountability, the expectations of who does what and why. And that needs to be explained to people. And then and only then can they repair the damage that's been done by these idiots going play and having go- or playing golf and having dinner. But I think you, you touched on a good point there about politicians feeding this stuff. And I think I go as far as to say, and we've said it uh, regularly on this, Leo Radgar's the Tonishton was the Taoiseach and this is his bread and butter. I mean, his, we know whether it's welfare cheats, cheat us all, or his tweet about Lynn Boyle last week about, you know, white middle-class men are, aren't welcome. He, he is playing to this stuff and it's his bread and butter. I just want to touch on uh, the weekend review in the Irish Times because they had a perceptions poll. Um, basically, how much do we really know about life in Ireland? And a couple of things jumped out to me. For, one was, uh, the question was, out of every hundred people living in Ireland, how many do you think are immigrants? In other words, were not born in Ireland. The perception was 24% of everybody living in Ireland and the reality is 17. That's a 7% jump, which is massive. And it shows that people have this idea that... Um, you know, there's a, a much bigger percentage of the population are immigrants than actually are. Um, out of every 100 people in Ireland, how many have a medical card? 38% and the reality is 32. Um, what percentage of government spending do you think is spent on social protection? The um, the perception was 36, the reality was 27. A, a difference of nine percentage points gaps. Um, just, there's a real idea that uh, all of these negative tropes that are fed into that, you know, we have a huge percentage of uh, a much bigger percentage of migrants living in Ireland, or we have a much bigger percentage of people accessing social welfare or accessing a medical card. Or, you know, this this real punch down uh, politics that we, we find feeds all of this, and that's why people think that the perception is much far removed um, from the reality. And then they use that those misperceptions, and they use it to drive this negative politics and to punch down and to to take away uh, whether it's you know are demonizing people in, in direct provision or whether it's demonizing people on social welfare they this is how they do it it is in communications and it's basically it's like putting the putting the wrong information out there exaggerating the situation as it is and then using that misconception to 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 to, pro, to pro progress their politics really um can I, can I just jump in yeah. there on one part of this because it might answer Philip's question when he asked you know why are people 50 people allowed to go to mass but not go to theaters or whatever um, in the perception poll, there's one out of every 100 people in Ireland who describe themselves as Catholic, how, how many go to Mass at least once a week? The perception is 46%, but the reality is 20%. And the thing is, I, I would argue that a lot of the politicians uh, believe 
there are more practicing Catholics in the country than there are. And as a lobby group, the Catholic Church punches well above its weight compared to the likes of theatre groups or sporting organisations or anybody else in, in, in the country. They still are among the most powerful um, lobbying groups, including, I might add, that we have one of the, the representatives writing a, a column in one of the newspapers every week, David Quinn, as well. So they have a disproportionate amount of say on, on how the country runs, and that's maybe one of the reasons for it. One of the um, fascinating things... Sorry for interrupting you, Sonia. I just want to make one point there and it might feed into what you're saying. That one of the things when I studied media and communication science that's lived with me to this day was I was reading a book one time and it said that the mass media cannot tell us what to think, but it can tell us what to think about. Okay. And that rang, that bell still rings in my head every time I see any of these reports, right? So that's, they decide the agenda, right? Now, we obviously have similar views on certain things on immigration, on social, on all these things, right? But once they set the agenda, they decide what we're talking about. And if you're talking about migration or immigration or medical cards, then automatically perceptions are going to be changed. They're going to be skewed based on that because very few people actually bother going and getting the evidence to find out. And this is part of the reason that I work the way I do. I'm moving more and more away from talking to experts. I was going to use the, the UKIP term, so-called experts there, or Tory party term, so-called experts, but experts and academics, and, academics, and going and talking to normal people, you know, taxi drivers and people who are cleaners and people who are working as hospital porters or people who aren't working at all. Because, you know, in order to sort of balance up that kind of thing where you're bringing in people who are talking about, oh, well, there's X percent of immigrants. I don't know. Tell me who these people are. Tell me their stories. Sonia and I are both immigrants in the countries that we live in, right? So we have a perspective that we have to share. It's often not a welcome perspective for people to hear. Indeed, you know, on occasions, you know, to use Brendan O'Connor's favorite expression at the moment, I feel fairly cancelled myself when people just decide, oh, okay, I fuck that guy. We can't be listening to that because, you know, we can't take that perspective on board right now. But that thing of, you know, not telling us what to think, but what to think about has a huge influence on the things that Claire just read out there. Yeah, and Sonia, I'd love to hear your perspective on this. Uh, yeah, no, uh, so I wanted to say something about what Dave was saying and um, it, uh, about the lobbying on, you know, the, the church and people's perceptions. So that, that kind of ties back in with how out of touch the political classes really are. And, and the press has a, a, a big, big uh, role to play in it, at least the establishment press. Um, it's, uh, and it's all been about lobbying. I mean, do you remember when the pubs were about to open because they found a loophole where some of them could claim that they were restaurants? And, and it was, I mean, everybody in this country was looking at that and thinking, this is so stupid. But we had no way of saying it because, you know, I mean, there was, there are all these lobbying groups and every, even now, like I was looking at the Sunday Business Post and we were saying about this sector, that sector, the other sector. And where is the sector of like, you know, and you never hear about like unions, like, you know, this, this, this thing called the economy and is decided by all these different sectors. It's like, and I think it's kind of our space, if you don't mind my language. It's not, it's not ask, you're not asking what I'll is like the prioritizing well-being and what do we need for that? I mean, do we really need the aviation sector? Yes, it's jobs. So I, if you keep people's lives and people's well-being at the center of it, you wouldn't really think about sectors, but what will we be, what will we do with people's lives, even if we let the aviation sector go, or, you know, even if we decide that people don't need to uh, fly so much, because uh, there are going to be, uh, you know, I mean, we have to change the way we 
we think because I mean there was a talk very much at the beginning of all of this about how nature is healing and how pollution's gone down and stuff and like as soon as that stuff started coming in when people started imagining a different way of doing things a different way of of uh, living a different way of arranging the economy uh, if that's when I think the panic setup started from the powers that be they want everybody to be commuting back into offices because what will the prepackaged sandwich section to do do you know what I mean it's a uh, so, uh, sorry, you want to come in there, Dave? Yeah, no, I mean, it, it again, it comes down to perception. There's two pages there in yesterday's or the weekend's Irish Times, 16 and 17, with two separate stories, but totally related. And it's very interesting that, that the linkage, and I'd say Claire might want to come in on this, but there's an article there, availability of homes to buy falls to 14-year low in August, right? And that, that, that's surprising in itself, I suppose. But it's the next part of it. In, in contrast, availability in the rental market has increased with 41% more properties for rent nationally and 92% more properties available in Dublin now as a result of COVID, right? And we obviously know why, why it is. My big concern on this, before I move on to the other article, is what's going to happen when COVID is over, for want of a better phrase. You know, the people who own these properties that are now bringing in tenants uh, because it's the only way they're going to get any sort of an income for that, that property itself. Once it comes back to, you know, tourism opening up again, they're going to go back to Airbnb, right? But that's a good link to the next story. So pandemic reveals impact of Airbnb. And I have a big problem with this. And one of the reasons for this podcast is to sort of look at how things are presented. And the way this is presented here is saying, you know, it took a pandemic to lay bare the impact of Airbnb on the state's rental market. No, it didn't. People have been talking about the impact of Airbnb for years. The amount of properties that are currently being rented out. Pre-COVID, there were more than 5,000 homes in Dublin available to tourists. 5,000 at a time when we had 10,000 homeless people, including 4,000 homeless, homeless children. And that links into what I was saying about, and you just touched on it there as well, Sonia, um, we don't hear the, 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 the right voices. The trade unions, uh, the civil society groups, the homeless charities have been talking about the impact of Airbnb for years. But the people that are listened to are the landlords, the property owners, and the big business that own these properties. And, and, and that's a major problem that we have. And we do need an alternative media in this country that's going to disregard and throw in the bin these fucking press releases that are constantly covered in all of the newspapers from Ryanair every week, every single week. I'm looking at it again in the Sunday Business Post. If you go to because I've been doing this show for 16, 17 weeks now, every single week Ryanair get an article. And I'm looking at one here in yesterday's Irish Times as well. Yeah, I, I know there's a, a huge, one of the, you know, working in media for 13, 14 years has, has shown me what's happened over the years. And in terms of the structural side of this, less journalists covering more stories. A journalist 10 years ago might have been covering two or three stories. Now they're covering five or six stories. So they're getting a press release in, just covering it and throwing it into the newspaper for an easier life. What we've seen, though, I think, and, and maybe this is worth the discussion, what we've seen in the last couple of weeks is young journalists coming to the fore yeah. and changing that and, and really challenging the government and people like Sarah McInerney, who again has a good article in the Today Sunday Times, it's worth purchasing just for her alone, not getting the job in RTE. And what does that say when the whole country is shouting now, give her the fucking job. I, I think I tweeted the other day about this saying, it's like that time, and Philip, you'll appreciate this because I know you work on a lot of sports stuff. When Wes Hoolahan couldn't get a game for Ireland, and the whole country's going, play fucking Wes Hoolahan. He's brilliant. He opens up other, other teams and, and we get real results when he's there. Sarah McInerney, the RTE had a chance to put someone in who was doing that on a political and, and societal basis, and they decided to, to, to scrap her and, and not give her the job, which is devastating in terms of where we come from. 
Yeah, I, I, two points on that I want to jump in on. One of them is what you're saying about we have some excellent young journalists coming up and it's really, it's actually really exciting because it, not only are they breaking stories and looking at it from a really critical angle, some of them just write like poetry and it's really, it hits, you know, it hits you and when you're reading it, it's really emotive, the imagery that they put across. Um, but I listened to a podcast with Emmett, or with um, Kevin Doyle and Ian McKenna and in it, Kevin Doyle mentioned, he said, uh, you know, and we were told for years that these things couldn't be happening, you know, around housing and opening up spaces for homeless people. And then, you know, COVID happened and it could. And I was shouting at the radio. Like, I was actually, I was like, you were told they couldn't be done. We've been saying for five years they could. The experts have been saying it. The academics have been saying it. The activists have been saying it. Politicians have been saying it. I'm not just saying it. They've been offering viable alternatives. You know, writing policy documents. Like, this stuff isn't a golden unicorn that we're looking for. Like, this is just ideology. And I found that really frustrating because it comes back to that idea of just publishing uh you know a press statement and like and the thing is is that i see some of these journalists going off and doing really good work in other areas so why aren't they able to do it when it comes to you know a, a neoliberal ideology and i think that that's that's internal bias that shows and that's when people's own politics you know unconsciously comes into play in in journalism um and second of all just around the housing i mean that's a real worry because as things start opening up we're having you know staycations at the minute people are traveling around the country we're holidaying in ireland um so you know some of those units are being used but again until we get back to until we move away from the financialization of housing until we really embed the right to a home in whether it's in the constitution or in you know real legislation i mean we're still talking about co-living for christ's sake like um until we move away from that this is never going to change and we're not going to realize any of that talk from the start of the pandemic about like sonia said you know real structural change that this is going to give us the opportunity and it, it's becoming a real wasted opportunity because again like sonia said what actually happened was when those conversations were starting to happen you had lobbyists really really um really starting to to come on the attack and really making sure that they they protected themselves and they protected their their circles there's one story that i want to bring in um because it's i, I think it's a really important one and it's one that we we touched on it a couple of weeks ago there was a small article in it um but i just like not nearly enough and it was about the um the the right to the pensions up north for people involved in the troubles and i think that the fact that we were you know, we, we can talk about a united Ireland and it, it tends to only be talked, be talked about when it's actually being politicised against Sinn Féin and only when it's being, you know, talked about in a negative sense. And actually on that, Jennifer Carroll O'Neill managed to use this scandal to take a dig at Sinn Féin by saying that, um, you know, if anyone is guilty of... of if anyone is guilty of risking politics, risking politics, it's Sinn Féin. And I just thought, how could a Fianna Gaylor look at a situation like this and actually use it as an attempt to to just further attack Sinn Féin? And it goes to how, and she talks about the troubles and she talks about violence. And it that really galls me when people use the, the trauma up north and the history of what happened to people up north as an attack to another, another political party. And it's just, it's so disrespectful because where are you when those people need financial support? Where are you on the issue around the pensions for victims of the troubles? Where are you around, um, you know, actual, you know, she actually mentioned John Hume in her article, but again, she uses John Hume for attack Sinn Féin rather than talking about John Hume in, you know, coming together and, you know, the actual politics that John Hume stood for. And I just, it really turns me stomach. We usually have, um, 
uh, regulars from up north on the podcast and I, I you know hopefully we get their opinion on that next week but if anybody wants to jump in on that it's just it's really starting to bother me that we don't cover enough stories from a from a, a cohesive angle about the north down here and we only seem to do it when it's being used to attack Sinn Féin or to politicize it everything you're saying there Claire basically plays like it, it encapsulates everything that's happened in the media right I hate to burst everybody's bubble but all these excellent journalists who've been doing such excellent work over the last few weeks on a variety of different stories if I wouldn't be surprised if none of them are still around in five years right because the business is built to move those people out right now in other countries you will have a, a, a sort of a part of the media industry that has built up from the workers movement right so you will have uh, unions will have invested in uh, titles like the guardian often blah whoever it happens to be in europe right so you will actually naturally have something that is slightly left of center right ireland has never had that ireland has only ever had right-wing media uh, we go back to Sean O'Rourke sitting at that dinner and that kind of thing. It's no, it's no sort of mistake that he's there. Right? Sarah McEnany did an absolutely brilliant job. I was told months ago because I would have moved home to Ireland for that job and I was laughed at when I suggested that. And they're going, they're going to give that to a safe pair of hands, right? Because RT is funded by advertisers. It's not just funded by the public, uh, by the TV license. It's funded by advertisers and they cannot afford to piss them off. Who, who advertises on RT? Ryanair. You know, all these hotels, all these other places that you have life insurance companies, whoever it is. You cannot yeah, afford to annoy those people. You can't afford to upset them. Go back to Noam Chomsky. Everything Chomsky has said about the media in the last 30 years, and I've been reading a lot lately, that in the American Civil War is all that I've been reading and listening to. And Chomsky said, those people, they are not wanted there. And if they're any good whatsoever, they're going to be moved into, we see good journalists moving all the time into political communications or working for companies and that kind of thing, because it's just not worth it. Your reward for doing good journalism is the, like hastening the end of your own career. Right? There's absolutely no future for a decent journalist who's holding people to account in Ireland because that's not what the media wants. They don't make money off holding people to account. Now, the people need it and the people appreciate it, but I guarantee you that everybody will forget Aoife's name. You know, if she was to move on to being, you know, head of comms for Tesco or whatever happens to be you know, like in the next little while. That's just expected that's just accepted so we absolutely need a situation whereby and this like this podcast that you're doing the tortoise shack you uh, mckenna's podcast Eamon dunphy's podcast which are various different perspectives but they are absolutely independent but nothing is big enough yet to be able to sort of take up to actually become a sort of a heavy hitter in these things and to be able to finance the kind of journalism because now what we're getting is people are coming to it for the love of it right but people have to eat you know like if these people do let go by whatever and the, the irish examiner is a brilliant newspaper and i love it i love the fact that it's a national newspaper no longer the cork examiner they do great work but there's no long-term future in that because eventually the advertisers will pull the plug if they get too close to the interests of capital and that is a massive massive bear trap for irish media right now and Philip, just as a nice segue into that, um, you have a really exciting project coming up and it's linked into, you know, really big story at the moment around US politics. Do you want to have a little chat to us about that and tell us what you're looking to do? Yeah, I'm going to take it back to 2016 and I was in the Midtown Hilton Hotel in Manhattan and a few floors above me, Donald Trump was up there and I was there five o'clock in the afternoon meeting a, a Swedish friend of mine who travelled from Las Vegas to New York and he brought with him two cardboard cutouts, one of Donald Trump and one of Hillary Clinton and he'd stop in different towns and he'd set them up and he'd say to people, okay, you know, here's, the pre or here's Donald Trump, here's Hillary Clinton, D tell them whatever you want, say whatever you want to them and he filmed it and it was brilliant. And I arrived there thinking, like everybody else, that Hillary was going to win the election. And obviously she didn't, right? So during that time, about half past five, Trump's people were coming down, having a few drinks in the bar where we were sitting. And they go, oh, we fought the good fight. It was good crack. We caused a bit of trouble. We shook a few people up. And then Florida fell. 
And then all of a sudden they went back upstairs and, you know, later that night, uh, like I went down to Times Square and I started broadcasting live for a news agency. And I was thinking, all I could ask people was, how did everybody get this wrong? How did we get it so wrong that this guy who traveled across America with two paper cutouts was able to tell me Trump would win, but CNN and NBC and the New York Times weren't able to tell me that was going to happen at all, right? So I came up with this idea, Claire, that what I want to do is I want to talk to ordinary people. So I came up with an idea that I call Outside It's America. I'm going to 50 states to do 50 podcasts in 50 days. I not following the candidates, right? The BBC can do that and CNN can do that. Loads of people do that. That's not where I'm going. I'm going to street corners. I'm going to diners. I'm going to gas stations. I'm going to gym. I'm going to wherever people are. I'm going to where George Floyd was murdered in Minneapolis. And I'm going to talk to people about what they want to see. And it's not just people of color. It's not just, you know, immigrants to America or people who I agree with. I'm going to go to the NRA's headquarters. I'm going to go to shooting ranges. I'm going to go to cookouts and baseball games. And I'm going to let people tell me their stories. And I'm going to do the one thing that journalists are so bad at these days, I'm going to shut the fuck up and just let them get on with it. And then I'm going to present it to you and to David and to Sonia and to anybody else who's going to listen to it. And I'm not going to tell you who's going to win. I'm going to let you work out for yourself what the mood of the country is because I'm going to finish up again on election day in New York City. And by then, I hope the people will have a fair idea of what's going to happen so that we won't be surprised. But to get back to what I was saying a little bit earlier on, nobody likes when I do these things, right? I'm not getting, like I put it to every media company in the world, they all said no. I put it to several big sponsors. I'm not going to name them. Most of them have said no or come back with you half the money. It's going to cost about 50,000 euros to do these things. So the project is out on Kickstarter. You'll find it on kickstarter.com forward slash Philip O'Connor. It's called Outside It's America. I need people to contribute. If people can contribute a tenor, that's absolutely brilliant. If you don't have the money, I understand that this is fucking awful times for everybody. So if you can't do that, just do me a favor and spread the word. Tell people, I know this guy. I've heard him speaking on the podcast. I think the work he does is worth doing. I think the perspective is going to be coming is worth doing. Put the word out there because it is going to be these small donations. It's going to be these small things that are going to get me over the line because it's an all or nothing thing with Kickstarter. You either get all the money and you go and you do the project or you get nothing and you stay at home. So I'm actually, this time next week, I'm going to be in Croatia. I have to get out of the Schengen area for 14 days before I can travel to the US. So I'll be sitting there watching the Kickstarter, hopefully ticking upwards as the listeners for this podcast get involved. But Dave, you know, tell all your friends in the union movement over there anybody who's interested in a different perspective i guarantee you that i will not meet another journalist until i get to new york city right i'm just not going to the places where they're going to hang out i got as i say it's like i had this idea for the eagle song take it easy i'm going to do a podcast standing on a corner in winslow arizona and that's that's what you're getting for your dollars right if you can put in 10 euros i'll go there and i'll talk to those people for you and you can all have a listen to it I love it. I, and I just want to say as well, like I know Philip a couple of years and I think his analysis is excellent and his journalism it has such integrity and he's just, I would love to see him do this uh, project. I've donated to the Kickstarter and I've shared it and I really, you know, if you can donate, please do. And if not, please just share it because, you know, a bit of reach on it will, will, will really spread it. Um, I, and I think as well, it, it does... You can bring it back to Irish politics as well because what's happening, that kind of move to the right over in America is really frightening how extreme it's become, but also like the dismantling of the US Postal Service and the actual, the, you know, when when the wrong people get into power and, and you know, they, they, they really lock down and they refuse to kind of feed into democracy or participate in democracy it's actually a really frightening place to be and it's um I, you know i think it's really important that we watch this stuff around the world yeah dave do you want to jump in just before we, we rock up 
Yeah, ju- just a very quick one, um, just because there's two articles in the Irish Times this weekend about uh, the elections happening over there. And look, best of luck to you, Philip, and all. I- I- I'd love to be doing it with you. <laughs> it sounds like a great project. <laughs> love to have um, and I will put you in touch with a few people that I know in different states, because um, I-, I do know a few trade unions and stuff over there. But, for, I mean, again, it comes back to the media and-, and the lack of coverage around the real issues. And I think this is how people get it wrong. I mean, the, the two articles that we've got here is Biden vows to end season of dark. It's all this rhetoric around his speech, which was pure rhetoric itself, right? And then the next one is nomination brings greening of White House one step closer, which is about the Irish connections to the uh, candidates. Um, So Biden's connections, who goes around as a Catholic. It says here, a former supporter of the Hyde Amendment, which bans the use of federal funds for abortion. He says uh, he's now firmly behind a women's right to choose. He changed his position on that. But um, it goes on to talk about... (laughs) This is one, one of the articles that Stevie wanted to bring up last week but didn't get a chance to, but Camilla Harris and her Irish connections. She is said to be descended from Hamilton Brown, a slave owner who emigrated from County Antrim to Jamaica, which is a really interesting connection. And, and you know, Stevie has, um, you know, he'd use different language to me to say, to say that connection right now is not exactly the one that you want to be associated with in the first place. But here, Ireland is really struggling to get a connection to the vice president. So therefore, we'll grab anything. We'll grab the whole slave owner thing. That's fine. We don't mind that. But um the point I'd make is that those two articles are not about the substantive issues uh, what's affecting Americans uh, on the ground over there. They're not talking about the healthcare system or the education system or COVID. They're talking about the rhetoric of Biden, who doesn't mention Trump in his speech, and that's a big thing apparently now, um, and then talking about what's the connections to Ireland. That, that's not what these elections are about. Tell us what no. the fuck is going on over in America. Tell us what is happening in the Bible Belt and in the, the Rust Belt. I mean, I did predict, I'm not, I don't want to sound too braggy around, but I did predict Trump was going to win purely based on the people I know living in Detroit and in, in some of those areas where they hated Hillary Clinton as much as they now hate Joe Biden. So again, I, I mean, while the polls are not good for, for Trump, I mean, I think it's going to be a lot closer than people are, are, are thinking. So, uh, but that's the thing, Dave. If we could just interrupt you there briefly, Dave, right? There's a, an enormous disrespect from many journalists for two classes of people. One is the people who read them, and the other is the people they interview, right? So, what I'm desperately trying to do, and it doesn't come naturally to a middle aged white man with a beard, right? But I'm desperately trying to use the word humility as the key word in everything I do, right? Nobody gives a shit what I think about anything. That's the way I approach this, right? I'm not there to give my opinion on things. I'm there to be a conduit for other people's opinions. And I've got to present them then to the the reader, to the listener, because let them make up their own minds. I don't want to be the gatekeeper. I want to be the networker. I want to be the person passing these things on. And I honestly believe that it's really cheap to go for the Irish angle. You know, so I I could write any amount of articles about, you know, Irish people in, in America and what they think of things, but that's not relevant. People are capable of thinking further than that and capable of thinking about, you know, the Asian American experience or the Mexican American experience. And that's what we always miss out on because we go for the simple one, the knee jerk and that kind of thing. You know, so that's really what I want to, like I say, I really mean it when I say I want to offer something completely different to CNN and the Times and everybody else. Brilliant. So before we wrap up, I just want to go to Sonia on one last comment. Uh, yeah, I was, I was just flabbergasted when uh, Dave 
mentioned the greening of America because immediately my mind went to, you know, as somebody who hopes not to die in the next 40 years, my mind like immediately went to climate change because the only thing I'd ever heard, I'd heard about Joe Biden recently on the climate change thing was uh, just because I, um, I follow various left people on Twitter was about how Joe Biden uh, dropped from the DNC platform the a pledge not to take money from fossil fuels. So, you know, yeah. and also recently, like, I mean, the, the person who wrote the Green New Deal bill in America, Senator Ed Markey, who's not by far the most left-wing senator or anything, but the establishment is coming out against him because he is running against a Kennedy. I mean, that, the Kennedys are still going, apparently. <laughs> so, you know, I mean, and so it just shows you that the Democrats have learned nothing from Hillary Clinton's laws. They've learned nothing from how close Bernie Sanders came, except for every time the left is raising its head you have to jump on it even stronger yeah i think the democrats have done in america have done a real damage to to left-wing politics and socialism in general dave you want to jump in on one last thing before we finished and i wasn't going to say anything but sonia's just raised it there you know i think it's important that we note that this week had the highest temperature on record ever uh, recorded in death valley over in the united states and uh, 54.4 degrees and you know that's terrifying talking, yeah we're talking about a you know a um uh, the, a government here that has the Green Party included in it and yet they have a programme for government that's going to tackle climate change but it's not going to touch on any of the major issues that are impacting on climate change including agriculture, transport, uh, including airlines, you know, one of the biggest emitters in the, in, in the world. Ryanair, the only non-coal-fired power plant included in the top 10 emitters in Europe, they're not going to be impacted by the programme for government um, and data centers and then a- addressing the whole core issue about growth. But I, I just wanted to, because again, um, something Sonia said earlier on about trade unions not having a voice. Surprisingly, on the front page of the business and money section of the Sunday Times, there's a discussion around Bank of Ireland offers staff up to 300 grand in severance. And this has implications, obviously, not just for the banks who don't have to pay any taxes on their profits here or whatever, but they're basically using those, what they would be using as taxes to, to pay in taxes, to let staff go, let workers go, make them redundant on really good terms and conditions uh, of, of redundancy, which has been described to me by people working for the uh, FSU, the Financial Services Union, as a bribe to get them out. And the implications, of course, for something like that are, because we've got banks up and down the country, is that uh, less people working in lo- local branches all over the country, potential closures of those uh, banks, and making it much more difficult for for, for small communities to continue to to operate and to grow. And, and, you know, we know about the post office networks, but the banks are just as important as well. Uh, and as a society, we need to start putting value on these things. But the Financial Services Union actually get a quote on the front page of a business and money section of the Sunday Times, which is highly unusual, so I said I'd get it in. Brilliant. So while we were, on, while we were uh, recording, there was a statement from Commissioner Phil Hogan, um, and I've just briefly read it here. It, it, it's, you know... It, it's long enough, but it's an unreserved apology. And it's basically, you know, I realise fully the unnecessary stress, risk and offence caused. He knows well, he never expected the people to come out against him that did. You know, he's, he's Fianna Gael royalty and even we saw Varad Gerke kind of come out against him last night and, and suggest that he consider his position. I don't get the impression looking at this statement that he's going anywhere. I think this is his attempt to, to seem like he has, like Philip, Philip said, some humility. But um, I, yeah, I, I don't hold any hope that putting this statement out means that he's, he's actually going anywhere. I think they, they'll think, you know, Teflon Phil is, um, strikes again. I would like to just touch before we end on the recall of the doll. 
we're looking at the dog being recalled now two weeks early, um, but but it's after the return of the gloves. So we had Mary Lou on the radio yesterday saying that she had asked uh, Michal Martin to recall the doll, that he said, you know, in no uncertain terms, that wasn't going to happen. And then a couple of hours later, we have a statement embargoed until after midnight that they are going to do it, which the pettiness was just, you know, just to, to be to come back at Mary Lou with such strong, with such a strong no, and then a couple of hours later, one or two things, it's complete pettiness that not wanted to seem to, you know, for to, to bow to, to Sinn Féin or it's just flip-flopping of the highest order. Um, it's still not good enough as far as I'm concerned because, I, you know, no one else in the country is getting extended holidays in the middle of a pandemic and such important times. For them to be coming back after the schools open is just an absolute farce. But, on that note, um, I want to thank everybody for coming on today. This has been a great, I think we could have gone on for another hour or two just on the COVID stuff, just on Phil Hogan, just on Golf Gate. Um, but huge thanks to Dave to Philip and to Sonia and tune in next week uh, subscribe to the pod and if you're interested have a look back we've done about 17 episodes so far and um, they're all online thanks a million bye